there's not a lot there apart from the racism. Welcome back to EnterTheRealWorld.com. This is There Will Be Movies, Volume 1, 2000-2009. This is 25 of our favourite movies that came out in a given decade. As I said, Volume 1 is covering those years. If you want to know how we arrived at this list, what was excluded, why your favourite movie ever isn't here, whatever, go listen to Episode 0, which is pinned on the page on the site, and also SoundCloud.com slash Mike and Matt. My name is Matt Waters. After that very wordy version of the intro, I am joined by... Ben Phillips. Ben, how are you? It's it's really fucking hot where I am. It's windy, so I can't have any windows open because everything's uh, just going to go insane, but it's really warm. I mean, it's it's warm, but like I'm not feeling oppressed at the moment. Okay. When do, I mean, you, I, when do you, as a straight white man, ever feel oppressed? Uh, very rarely. <laughs> you mean not all the time, the biggest neglected minority in the world these days? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Only when I talk about video games. Oh, of course. Of course. So, uh, episode 8, we are going to be talking about Lost in Translation, our first movie with a female director, right? Our only movie. Our only movie. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. Spoilers, we're not doing the Hurt Locker. Yeah. Wow. That's kind of sad, but... <laughs> Picked by both of us, really. I mean, it, I don't know how one would do a list of 25 without giving it at least a mention. It's interesting, because like, this is one of the few years... I think this is the first time we're doing an Oscar nomination uh, for Best Picture. Yeah, I think so, yeah. But it's also like one of those ones where it's like... It was never going to win because it was up against <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Never uh, kind of doing its victory run at that point. But yeah, this is like one of those... Uh, even even in the midst of like sometimes you get those movies where like there's the great movies and then there's the ones that the Oscar recognise, but then sometimes you get those ones that are like both. Yeah. And this is very definitively like one of those it is both seen by I would say most like film aware people as being like a great film because it doesn't <laughs> Nothing happens. <laughs> Nothing happens, but also it's like it's weird in that I think a lot of people know that this movie exists and know that its reputation is a good movie, even though it's like this tiny indie movie that was made for almost nothing. Yeah, yeah it's clear that's one of those ones where a lot of people fake that they've seen it because it's actually not that hard to fake that you've seen it because it's about <laughs> three iconic scenes <laughs> and you can just pick and, them and, you, and you can summarise them with the pictures that people always do in articles whenever this movie comes up Indeed. it's like yeah I've seen the karaoke scene look I, I, yeah. I know the pictures Bill Murray sitting on the bed from the poster them doing karaoke and then the, the famous final moment like you could see just those three things and probably know everything that happens in this movie so written and directed as we said our first and only female director Sofia Coppola you know no famous relatives at all uh, <laughs> as mentioned on adaptation the ex wife of Spike Jones and the cousin of course of Nicky Cage who decries his real name she also this decade directed Marie Antoinette I don't know about you but no real interest from me there this was an unchallenged only film by this director for me I think her more interesting films kind of like she doesn't make another interesting film this decade but then no, a quiet decade for her actually yeah and but then there are things like I mean I wouldn't put the bling ring down on like my list of best films but the beguiled is certainly an interesting enough movie to want to talk 
well. Sure. Not only is she the first and only woman we're covering in terms of directors this decade, she, with the release of this movie, became the first woman ever to be nominated for writing, directing, and producing a film. And depressingly, she is one of only five women to ever be nominated for an Oscar for Best Director, and only one of those has won it, and it was uh, Bigelow for The Hurt Locker. All of that is incredibly sad to me, but there you go. I'm just I'm just trying to think who those five are now. So we've got Greta Gerwig, yeah, Sophia Coppola, yeah, Catherine Bigelow, yeah. She, she she got she's twice, isn't she? Uh, potentially. Yeah. I can't remember if she was nominated for Zero Dark Thirty. Jane Jane Campion. Yeah. Oh God, I, this is going to be either it's going to be like someone who I don't remember, or it's going to be from someone like really early, like a 1970s yeah. director. Oh, go on, tell me who it is. Lena Wertmüller, who was okay. nominated for Seven Beauties in 1977, and then as you said, Jane Campion for the piano. The gap between them is getting like smaller, which is good. And I mean, we could end up with Greta Gerwig repeating her Oscar nomination for Little Women if that happens. Yeah. That'd be um, nice. First woman to ever be nominated twice. Yeah, that would be real good. But yeah, yeah a sad statement first. I think I think a lot of like the highly acclaimed movies of this year are by female directors. I don't know whether yeah. or not they're Oscar movies, but like um The Souvenir and The Farewell both had female directors. Yeah. So I think it'd be fun if it was like Greta Gerwig and then the director of those two movies as well. But I doubt the Oscars are gonna go like, Oh, we love women. <laughs> they don't love anyone. A sad statement first would be a good alternate title for this movie. Speaking of which, have you seen the like many title like the irony that the title itself Itself is lost in translation and there aren't really phrases that mean that in a lot of languages so it's called, I've, not, like, I've not seen this <laughs> I just call it oh it's called all kinds of things like love translated and love in a strange place and, and all kinds of stuff like that so it's like yeah you, you nailed it with the title so released September 12 2003 in the US but January the 9th 2004 in the UK but that does qualify it to be something for you to talk about the year 2003 in movies and I believe the only opportunity for you to do so. <laughs> yes, so as mentioned, it was nominated for Best Picture. It did not win because Lord of the Rings Return of the King, this tiny movie that definitely didn't break the Yawn. record most Oscars win. <laughs> Yawn. Master and Commander, Far Side of the World. Oof. Mystic River. Okay. Seabiscuit. Spider-Man, <laughs> Spider-Man rides a horse. Yep. Accurate. That and then Bojack true. Horseman goes on to make it far more famous than the movie. Those are our five Oscar nominees. I think the, the Lost in Translation and Lord of the Rings deserve to be there. I like Master and Commander just fine. I, mm. uh, But like again, <laughs> there's other movies from this year that you probably, as cliche as it is, I probably would say like Finding Nemo deserves to be there. Yeah. And Mr. River is good Clint Eastwood. There's no such thing as good Clint Eastwood anymore. That man is cancelled. I mean... <laughs> I mean, he, he is cancelled. I've never like, actually said someone is cancelled out loud before, so that was fun. <laughs> but, like, I mean, I, it's like he does that thing where, like, at this point, it's like every movie is kind of hitting, but eventually get to a point where it's like every other one. But then he also made American Sniper, which is this juggernaut movie, which mm-hmm. is insane. But, yeah, I mean, like, there's other good movies that came out this year, a lot of them coming from kind of foreign people. You've got Dogville. Elephant is kind of a, another US one by Gaspar Sant, which is obviously about the Columbine shootings. Yeah. Ties EQ, Old Boy, Goodbye oh. Dragon In, Old Boy's Good, uh, Kill Bill, Volume 1 came out in 2003, Capturing the Freedmans, Memories of a Murder, American Splendor, like 2003, lots of good movies were coming out. Yeah, and Kill Bill. I like Kill Bill. <laughs> we're going to have quite a discussion at the end of this podcast. And then we will just close with our like the, the top five at the UK box office the weekend that this came out. So as you said, it came out in January 2004. Uh, number one, still trucking for, God, how many were? Four weeks, it's still getting about £7 million a week. You've got Lord of the Rings, <sighs> the King at number one. Uh, number two, potentially even more racist movie than this one, uh, <laughs> Lost Samurai. Yeah, oh God, yeah. I've seen that once, a very long time ago, but yeah. Uh, number three, Peter Pan. 
Okay. Number four, Love Actually, which is eight weeks in the cinema. It's it's making yes. a very healthy amount of money. Uh, yeah. I think it's going to start petering off now. It's not Christmas anymore. You strike me as someone that would really like Love Actually, and I'm now shocked you didn't put it on the list. I like Love Actually enough. Okay. Um, and then opening at number five, we have this movie, Lost in Translation, opening weekend in the UK. It made $1.5 million. Ended up making about $18 million in the UK, which is actually pretty good for a movie this size. Yeah, I'm surprised it, it did that well here, to be honest. I mean, it, obviously, it, overall, it made $119, $120 million. Yeah, I rounded it up like, $120. On a, on a budget of $4 million, that's got to be one of our larger like profits of anything we've done so far, because that's gargantuan. You have to imagine that so much that four million is like Bill Murray's paycheck. Mm-hmm. And then Scarlett Johansson flying everyone over to Japan. Probably yeah. that's the rest of it. I mean, uh, well, Scarlett Johansson was seventeen when they cast her and eighteen when they filmed it, so she can't have been making that much money. No, I mean, like, what? What at this point has she done? Is it? Is it like she's just done Ghost World? Probably. Sofia Coppola noticed her in some film I've never heard of, and I apparently didn't feel the need to write down. But yeah, you're, you're probably just looking at Ghost World, and then yeah. I she, mean, she got, so she's got she got Ghost World. She got Horse Whisperer. She was in Home Alone. Three, mm-hmm. uh, North by Rob Reiner, which is like the start of Rob Reiner's decline. How dare uh, you? <laughs> how dare I? I'm joking. Rob, Rob Reiner has the most fascinating. Like, I know. Look forward to our Rob Reiner uh, miniseries. It's it's like this is File Tap, The Sure Thing, Stand by Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, North, which is like the start of it, The American President, his last great movie, and then after that, it's like movies that no one's ever heard of. Mm-hmm. Like he has a string of like. Like five or six of like really strong like you could throw them on a list of greatest movies of all time yep. and then nothing well I mean we've drawn up some some principled lists for other decades than the ones we're covering so far and uh, Rob Reiner does feature more than once and so like, which one do you pick yeah so this movie's 101 minutes long I think it feels a little bit short once it gets going because it deliberately is sort of stuck in slow for the first half hour and then it picks up and it's like oh and I guess it's over almost um, wait we need, we need to actually also did Eight-Legged Freaks the year before Lost in Translation, which I think is an important movie to bring up. It's so important that we definitely need to interrupt just moving on with the podcast. <laughs> yes, she did do Eight-Legged Freaks. Jesus uh. Christ. So, Sofia Coppola visited Tokyo a lot in her 20s. Allegedly, well, not even allegedly, she has said that the relationship between Charlotte and her husband is based on her own with Spike Jones. I don't know, were they divorced at this point, or were they still together? I don't know. I would assume. Either they're, they're in the process of divorcing, or yeah. It's, it's like fairly recent history. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she divorced him in 2003. So they probably were like doing the process but hadn't so, actually so, done so it. This, when... So this movie, this movie premiered at August Telluride. I'm just, I'm just imagining like, I mean, obviously divorce takes a lot longer than that. You normally separate and kind of like yeah. move out from each other. I'm just imagining a world in which like Spike Jones sits down to watch his wife's movie that she's made in Japan and is <laughs> sat there going like, is this me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is that scene from uh, Girls where they read from the diary. So she, she fell in love with Tokyo particularly the hotel, the Park Hyatt, which is where they film the interiors of the hotel, and, you know, experienced a lot of the same feelings that these characters go through. So she started out with a lot of short stories and mood pieces and wandering around Tokyo taking hundreds of photos to make like a little mood bible as it were. Turned it into the full script, which she wanted to be funnier and more (laughs) romantic than The Virgin Suicides, which is not difficult. She always had Bill Murray in mind and said that she wouldn't have made the film if she couldn't get him. But as we alluded to in our episode covering the Royal Tenenbaums, Bill Murray had no management at this point and ran his pitch 
searching through that legendary fabled answering machine and it took her a year to get a reply from him and she claims that she left literally hundreds of messages on that machine. She enlisted Wes Anderson, Mitch Glazer and Al Pacino to try and help people we all know and despite eventually agreeing, he never actually signed a contract and all they had was a verbal agreement. So she didn't know it was real until he showed up in Tokyo, which is fucking terrifying. <laughs> As I said, Johansson was cast at the age of 17. Uh, it did not take a year and some celebrity friends to get her to sign on. <laughs> and Coppola allegedly saw them as a modern day, like Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Still a bit creepy that she was, uh, <laughs> you know, 18 during this. And they shot this without permits. They didn't use lighting for exteriors. They had a tiny crew. They likened it to filming a documentary. So like, they could have been arrested at any point in any of these exterior shoots, to be honest. But there you go. Such is the life of the indie filmmaker. So, opening on a close-up of Scarlett Johansson's ass is certainly a way to open a movie. Apparently, critics love it and think it's, like, evocative of paintings and the duality of mainstream eroticism and indie, like, beauty. And it's like, sure, it is also just an an extreme close-up of a girl's ass wearing, like, see-through underwear. But you do you, Sophia. Yeah, I mean, like, my partner turned to me the first, like, five seconds of this goes, like, is this going to be problematic? I'm like, I mean, it's a female director, so I'm hoping... <laughs> Not in the way you're thinking. <laughs> the, the rest of the movie is a lot more yeah, I mean, problematic than... <laughs> you say, you know, the director is a, is a woman, and, and, and I said, you do you, Sophia, apparently, because Scarlett Johansson was so nervous about filming this, as she rightfully should be. Sophia Coppola did the shot first in the exact same pair of underwear. I don't... I hope it's not the exact same pair of underwear, because maybe gross, but, you know, yeah, that happened. They called the hotel to come up and, like, take it away for a wash. They sat there. <laughs> For like the hour and a half it would take for like the washing to go through. Or they wore them over that. No, because they're see through. Uh, anyway. They are see through. Anyway, it's a surprising opening shot for a movie to be honest. I kind of want to just get this out of the way now. There is a shocking amount of racism in this movie, and it's not that I didn't remember it, but I guess I didn't remember the frequency of it, and how many jokes about L's and R's there are, just in succession. It's it's like like, there are three sections of the movie that are devolved around this same, this thing that does exist, but is definitely not what it's represented as in this movie. Yeah, and it's, you know, Lapak and Centaura and Lodgermore and Bracktoe and lock and lol lip yeah lip my stockings and you know that the escort it's all very like giggly schoolgirl ooh Mr. Harris and it's all just so like oh these are such bad stereotypes the thing is there's like the simple move you make to make this better is that the joke is on Murray yeah look it's performative this is what white people think Asian people are so this is what we're gonna give you and then she snaps out of it and she's like dude what the fuck I mean not in an American accent but you know yeah you just you just shift you just shift it a little bit where like because the joke is him the Bill Murray doing the dry kind of reaction to not understanding what's going on and it's like supposed to be this thing where like oh he's the civilised person who understands who, like who, who gets what's going on and once he's got over this but it's like the joke isn't on him at any point yeah and you know I mean the, the movie starts with like you know he's collecting all these gifts and business cards and like he meets them all for like literally 30 seconds and then they're like right bye and you know maybe these things are true to life but when you couple it with the less tasteful racism that is going on it it's a bad sort of overall narrative and you know the shot with him in the in the the elevator where he's like a foot taller than everyone it's like yeah I'm sure this happens to western people when they go there sometimes but like did you absolutely have to and I don't know maybe 
if the rest were handled with some sensitivity, that would just be a funny shot or something. But no. Yeah. So let's let's do some quotes now. Yeah. Uh, we have Japanese TV critic Usugi. I don't want to. I, I, I apologies for any pronunciation. The core story is cute and not bad. However, the depiction of Japanese people is terrible. Yep. But then we have Kiku Day, who is a musician specializing in Japanese flute, saying she couldn't understand or couldn't help wondering not only whether I'd watched a different movie, but whether the plaudits had come from a parallel universe. Uh, Someone said is, that like that none of the Japanese people are given a shred of di- dignity. Yeah, there is no scene. scene. There is no scene with Japanese are afforded a shred of dignity. The viewers sledgehammered into laughing at these small yellow people and their funny ways. Uh, and I would we say that like her friends in the US. that they hang out with at like the karaoke night, they're like the closest things to just being normal people. But yeah, everyone else is played for laughs pretty much. Yeah, it's 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 really really kind of upsetting that yeah. the movie does this, and it is like the overwhelming thing where like Asian critics will go like, "Why is this movie getting the plaudits?" I mean, yeah. even even on my list of like the greatest movies of the 21st century, this is firmly the number one film of 2003 and like in the top 10 films of the decade and I definitely don't think the movie is bad I just think it's so massively problematic that to yeah. not engage, to not engage with this point is doing a disservice to like how far we have come in the 16 years and how much better these people should have known at the time I think one um, of the producers defended it and defended Sofia Coppola and was like oh you know I don't think there's anything in there that doesn't show that she has reverence for, for Japanese people but it's like I couldn't I didn't do a huge amount of looking around but I didn't really see anything from Sofia Coppola herself giving any kind of statement in response to this because she must have heard it. There is no yeah, way I you think, could think, escape that. Like the, the other, the other thing that is kind of pointed out by some of the the, the 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 critics is that the movie does have a reverence for Japan, but it's it's monks and, and temples. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a it's a reverence for an older Japan, not the modern Japan. Mm-hmm. And New like, Japan is bad, and Tokyo is bad, and yeah. But there's none of that. Like I mean, like obviously nowadays, if you get a certain demographic of a white person to go to to Japan, they would go to Akihabara and like Osaka walk down the street. And, yeah. yeah, and and like they and like they would be like, oh wow, look at this thing. But even then, there's this kind of like there is not a thing to say that Japanese culture is prob- isn't problematic. And I think the only the only time they get close to like an actual cutting critique of Japanese culture is the guy reading like hentai on the train. Yeah, he's reading Ghost he, in the Shell, which Scarlett Johansson would go on to star in. As a you know, this is where she gained her experience as a Japanese woman. So, but like there there <laughs> is a problem on like Japanese public transport of like women. Yeah. Being groped and all these yeah. things, and it's, it's the closest they get to like an actual. But even critique. that, it's like I'm sure there are men on public transport reading things that have giant anime is in them. But like, did you have to show? Like, it is a choice what you do and don't put in your movie, and like, yeah, and like, in, a, in a movie filled with all these like bad depictions of Japanese people, including this as well, mm-hmm. feels like a moral judgment. Yeah, it's like you're just piling on and you're saying, oh, Japan are bad, but. <sighs> Alas, I feel that all needed a great deal of talking about, but let's now try and talk about I mean, what's I mean, good we're, about we're, it. We're still gonna we're still gonna like mention it at certain points. I do think sure. like there there is exactly one scene in this movie where I feel like the title is more than oh, yeah. him not understanding how they talk about things. Yes. The sort of crux of the first act of the movie is this just Sofia Coppola like really nails down very thoroughly and stylishly the lonely hotel malaise, the kind of the insomnia, the not quite understanding how everything works. You just get a lot of Bill Murray just wandering this hotel, unable to sleep, fax machines going off, auto curtains, not being able to work the TV. Although I do like, um, he watches one of his own films overdubbed 
and I think that they could have done a little bit more with that, I think, but throughout the whole movie, but particularly in this first half hour, you see an absolute fuck ton of this just very quiet, very banal loneliness and detachment from Bill Murray. And the movie does like a good job. I mean, obviously, like there's a scene in the elevator where he's two feet taller than every other person in the elevator, mm-hmm. and I'm sure the casting call was for like we want five foot five Asian people as opposed to like just any old Asian people. Yeah. But like it's it is a really striking shot of that scene because like, Bill Murray is tall. Yeah, he is. That's the thing that sort of is lost in that joke. It's not just that they're short; he is also quite tall, so it's more pronounced. But yeah, the the scene you're talking about. So he he's in Japan in the first place because he is agreeing to do a commercial for Centauri whiskey, which Francis Ford Coppola did a I think it was a whiskey commercial with uh, Kurosawa in Japan. Uh, which is what Sofia Coppola is basing this on. And this is almost entirely improvised, wherein you have a director with a vision who is giving this impassioned direction, and then the interpreter gives him two lines, and it's like, uh, it's like, uh, turn to camera. And I think someone actually translated exactly what he's saying, and it's actually, it would have been helpful direction. And like, <laughs> you can pick out the odd word, you hear him say like, bogey, and, and, and that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's just fantastically awkward and plays perfectly to the title of the film where just there is just nuance that is going to be lost when you attempt to one for one translate a language and here the interpreter is is not helping by you know I mean obviously she's going to speak much better English than Bill Murray is Japanese but she's not doing the world's great you get the impression she's not 1000% fluid in English and it's sort of like she's summarizing it with the limited uh, vocabulary she has in English and it's like it's not her fault it is lost in translation but then she's also not helping it and and also the stage directions at the photo shoot as well just th- these two scenes i think it's like this is what works and i think isn't offensive because what he's saying back to them isn't getting through to them either yeah like this this is a lot better because it the, 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 there is moments in that in that photo shoot which are again that l and r thing which is like the, the big weakness of that one but this first direction scene is really good and does a fantastic job of getting across because because again it's all about the fact that there isn't like this biting kind of sarcasm for bill murray it's more of him just kind of musically going like is that all he said like <laughs> i feel like yeah he has, he's gone on for a long while and the you as the audience would normally not know what's going on and I would be and I feel like this would play as well enough to like someone who was fluently speaking in Japanese to kind of understand and go like oh no he has given this like beautifully complex yeah. stage direction yeah and he's like I I can't remember it but it, it's like you know you're in the room you look with the intensity of seeing an old friend for the first time in a long time and then you turn to camera and you say and, and like Humphrey Bogart you say this and it's like Instead, it's just turn to camera and then like um, with intensity and then uh, like an old friend and it's like that's, you can kind of stab at what he's going for, but you've lost the eloquence of it by reducing it down. I mean, because you you even get the thing like he says like you do it like Bogey and Casablanca like he is using filmic language that is iconic and universal to kind of like understand what's going on, but all Bill Murray hears is. <laughs> Bogey Casablanca Suntory time. That's that's all he hears. Suntory time. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, I don't think either his takes are bad either. No, I think he he ends up giving the he probably ends up giving them what they want in the end. It's just getting there is. is... 
I like pulling teeth. And yeah. Yeah. I feel like the photo shoot is a lot less successful at doing what they actually want them to do. Well, yeah. I like when he's saying like to do it like James Bond and he does the exact same turn and point like literally five times in a row. It's like, aren't you supposed to be giving him some variants so that he can pick one? Like you're doing the same thing. I think it all being improvised does really, really help because you're getting that authentic response from Murray where he genuinely is like, okay, and like not knowing what to do and just going with his, his sort of acting instincts and falling back on that and it comes across really well. Some I, do, I, do think, I do think my problems with the second translation scene are again you have the Lodger Moore yeah. and uh, that's bad but there's a more detachedness from Bill Murray in this scene yeah. and obviously like he's not interested in doing a good job that that is part of his character is this kind of like he doesn't want to be there he's he's in a midlife crisis he I don't know if it comes up but like I think it's sort of alluded to that he hasn't really had like a great film in a long time and, and yeah. yeah but it's it's more like in the advert scene which I'm sure is probably like all he wanted to do was do that advert and then leave but he actually puts in good work yeah. Like, he gives them what they want, whereas this photo scene, it feels like he's kind of going like, this is dumb, I don't like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's there it... for the commercial, I feel I feel the photo shoot is just extra. Yeah, but it just, it just feels like there's a level of, like, this is beneath me, mm-hmm. that comes off as a little disrespectful yeah. in this scene, and possibly is exacerbated by the fact that they have got that core translation joke that they make throughout the movie in there as well, that kind of, like, downplays it to me, but it feels like a less successful version of that first advert scene. Oh yeah, but I think that is on purpose, I think it's him, he's arrived with a vaguely open mind albeit like I don't need to do this but I'll do it and then as he's having a worse and worse time and getting more and more frustrated with the people around him and you know the constant faxes and phone calls to his wife where they're failing to communicate and he's like asking if he can come home earlier and he's like refusing to to do the TV show that he ultimately ends up doing and it's like yeah he he has lost what minimal enthusiasm he had to be here and he's (laughs) being a bit of a child being a bit of a brat about it to be honest yeah I do like that uh, you see the like pinned back tux because you see him from behind and they've got (laughs) these clips to like make the tux fit him better and stuff so you know he is not the only one having a tough time of it Charlotte Scarlett Hansen is uh, struggling as she is so her husband Giovanni Ribisi one of my favourite actors who I wish he was in more and he's already in quite a lot but yeah does this mean you haven't seen Sneaky Pete? I haven't no you should watch Sneaky Pete I probably should so he's like a celebrity photographer so he's there on business in Japan they are relatively newly married I believe and well, it almost feels like at first you think this might be their honeymoon but then you realise he's there to direct stuff and like be there he's, he's there on business and she's tagging along so it's yes. like okay so but I think I think she just says two years later on in the movie I think it's they've been together two years I don't know if it's that they've been married to well <laughs> either way um, it gives the impression that they're newly together because they don't I don't know they don't gel all that well and I think like you said like it's seeming like they're there on the honeymoon moon it's like i feel that is sort of an indictment on the strength of their relationship if they've been together for a lot longer but it seems like they're a relatively new couple that maybe shouldn't have gotten married it's like yeah so you know you get all the stuff like she can't sleep she's sitting in the windows um every shot of like a window looking out of the city is fucking gorgeous you know she can't sleep he's snoring it's all this sort of shorthand stuff with him sort of ignoring her feelings and, and wants and and 
sort of hand-waving her concerns and she ends up parroting back what he's clearly said to her a lot and she's like you'll be working all the time and I'll have a much better time here and, and all that sort of stuff and it's just so like oh no you've been like <laughs> conditioned and like I know she doesn't believe that but you know she's saying it because she knows he's going to so she might as well do it and then he can just fuck off but it's all very very sad and like you know seeing her break down into tears after calling her mother who everyone they talk to on the phone <laughs> from Japan uh, it just doesn't not click well and it's it's very true to life like people often are a little bit distracted and they're not giving you their full attention on a phone call but especially when like you are being as emotionally close as these people are because like neither Bill Murray's character or Scarlett Johansson like are like opening up fully they're kind of being like they they want to they want to say something but they hold back at the last minute which would be the thing where like someone would actually like click and go oh no something is wrong this yeah. isn't but I think that's again very yeah. true to and I think it's another sort of it's it's not the same kind of lost in translation but I think it's kind of lost in the medium of long distance phone call and like being denied that face to face contact and attention. I mean, I think I think I think this lost in translation is a lot more successful because I think it this is the one that really reinforces the connection that Bob and Charlotte have together. The the lack of connection to anyone else in their lives. Do do you either the mother or the the wife have like voice actors or like who, who like who is voicing them or uh, are they? The wife is voiced by like a member of the crew, I think, and I, okay. don't, I don't know. Who voices actually, that does, does Scarlett Johansson's mother actually talk on the phone, or is it just her uh, reaction shots? No, I think you hear her. It's been, it's been a few days for both of us since we've seen the movie. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure you hear her. And like, yeah, she's saying how she went to to a shrine and like she didn't feel anything, and and having no like emotional response to that. But then her mum is basically like, "Oh, go see the stuff. You'll enjoy it. You'll love it." And and it's just like you're not hearing me. And she's just like, "Okay, I'll talk to you later." And then just cries, and it's just so so sad. Her situation is made a lot worse when the character of Kelly, Anna Faris, arrives at the hotel and is basically hitting on her husband. <laughs> I don't know if it's implied that they used to like have a little thing or if it is just she wildly flirts with all the men around her or, or whatever, but she is like the big famous movie star over here to promote a movie with Keanu Reeves, uh, Japanese ally Keanu Reeves, and it's speculated by some but not confirmed that she is loosely based on Cameron Diaz who worked with Spike Jones and make of it what you will. <laughs> I think. I mean, because she's talking about yoga and clean eating and, like, I don't know, man. It's... Cameron Diaz is really good at being John Malkovich. She is. I think, very pointedly, she is the one actress that does not come back for adaptation. Yep, there you go. Uh, yeah, so, you know, she is very not the same type of person as her and, like, her husband sort of taking her side a bit and you get this repeated thing. She brings up herself and you hear it directly from his mouth. He basically tells her off for being clever and, and for looking down on people or his perception that she's looking down on people for being less clever than her and you can read that as me. You you tell me. You, you react as if you're cleverer than me and, and all that and insecure men and all that sort of stuff and it's like I don't know, is she, I don't know if he full-on gaslights her, but, like, there is certainly a large element of, like, don't do this, don't do that, and then ignoring her concerns and, like, you know, telling her off for smoking. It's like, yeah, smoking's bad, but you pile it on with everything else. You don't really get a lot of support from this husband character towards her, and he's just ignoring her, basically. <laughs> and then this this leads to, you know, uh, Charlotte and Bob. They're, they're sort of orbiting 
around each other for the first half hour of the movie. Like, they see each other in the elevator and the bar, uh, but they don't actually get a drink together until, like, literally, like, 32 minutes into the movie or something like that. And they start swapping stories about not being able to sleep and, and, and life in Japan and not enjoying the TV and, and all of this stuff. And, and she says how he's having a mid he's probably having a midlife crisis. And that goes completely unchallenged by him when normally I feel when men are hit with that label, they're like, immediately like no 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 not at all that's like that kind of silent confirmation from him is, is pretty damning i think <laughs> and you get the awkwardness of them like they bump into each other on the way to and from the pool and i think that little encounter really captures a great deal of this movie in general it's this they have a desire towards each other like they are gravitating to each other and like clinging to each other because it's like a we are very lonely and it seem we recognize each other's loneliness and you seem like the only person that is familiar to me because you're white <laughs> um, but they don't actually really have anything to say to each other There's, there is no great foundation for a relationship yet and it's not yet in a place of it being or I, at least I don't read it as being it doesn't read as him like being overly interested in banging her at this point either so it's sort of like a they're almost trying to force some kind of connection when they really have nothing in common other than being in this same situation and I think that is very telling about the way this movie and their relationship with each other unfolds and how it all ends. Like, there are versions of this movie where they end up blissfully in love and, and, and ending up together and leaving their respective partners, but that's not the way it goes because this is very, uh, at this time, in this city, in this moment of our lives kind of thing. And, and the way I read their entire thing is they are very caught up in this one-week situation and they may like look back on it and smile a bit but it's not like oh she was the one that got away from me or whatever it's almost like there's this like bolt of bolt of connection that mm -hmm. neither of them seen coming that isn't based on anything other than this kind of like shared experience of they're in this intense situation where they don't know people although charlotte does somehow know people that's not really explained <laughs> how she knows people but like they're both intensely lonely they're both going through some stuff they both neither of them feel like they overly want to be there nope or at least don't want to be there doing what they're doing. They'd much rather be... She is there tagging along with the husband, and he is there on a sort of obligation, like a contractual sponsorship obligation. Like, it's not... And, yeah, and so this kind of, like, deep well of, like, not wanting to be there, this ennui, leads to this connection that, as you say, isn't based on anything much apart from, like, a shared experience of insomnia. But yeah. because there is that connection, it inspires them to try harder and, like, forge it into something deeper. It reminds me of... I've, I literally can't think of an example but you see this thing of like what are we in like the real world kind of thing and it's like in a particular heightened situation or a strange scenario it's like yeah we have gravitated to each other here but then in your everyday real life and whatever like what do you have in common what is your common ground is there anything to build anything from and I think the answer with these two is actually no but they do have that you know he's going through a midlife crisis she is going through that hauntingly familiar post graduation from university I don't know what to do with my life malaise and then on top of that it feels like she's gotten married quite young and yeah it's all very like oh shit i've found myself in i mean i mean i'm in a foreign country with no idea what i'm doing in my life while well, my husband is being relatively successful yeah who is someone who i have not felt an emotion emotional connection to in some time yeah and it's that, it's that thing of like i i am in a place where i don't know what's going on the person who i nominally love does have stuff that they understand that's going on and it makes me feel worse because i don't 
exactly uh, and yeah. it just kind of like exacerbates this and exacerbates this and so you do find comfort in like someone who is equally like oh they don't know what they're doing too and they're yeah. also a mo- and they're also a movie star who is well apart from the movie star bit that's the foundation of all modern relationships everyone's <laughs> just lost and can't afford rent so this moves us to what I feel is the second act of the movie and so they agree to go out together uh, with her friends who as you say we have no idea how she knows them and they, they go out not really clubbing but you know they go to bars and they go to a karaoke place and you get that iconic shot of her in the pink wig resting her head on his shoulder so when he knocks at her door ahead of this night out he both knocking at the door and once he is let in he has infinitely more energy and enthusiasm than we have seen from him at any point in the movie up until now and he probably won't have it again after this little stretch and I feel that is entirely matched and mimicked by the pacing of the movie itself where the first half hour is really quite slow and quiet and a bit like i mean the first half hour is like four or five scenes that are all about seven to eight minutes each yeah it's it's like you have the two director scenes you have the scene with the the cool girl yeah and then it's um, just a lot of like back and forth in the hotel and like he's down here he's up here he's over here he's down here and it's all just very like passage of timey and like intentionally low energy but then you hit this point where like he is excited about this and suddenly and, we and get this is... quite like kinetic series of scenes with a lot shorter shots and there's more music and there's more fun and and everything like that and then it slows down again later on as he gets a little bit more sad panda again and i think that's a very film criticy thing to do i think it is for sure there that they are like because his whole story is from his point of view pretty much i know we get scenes where he isn't in them and it's charlotte but for the most part we are experiencing bob's time in japan and she is sort of the key player in his story in japan but because it is from his point of view the energy of the film is mirrored by his sort of mental state at that point. And him showing up in the fucking awful t-shirt that he has to turn inside out and all of that stuff. And then like running around and doing the karaoke. It's also so good. I, I, I love that both of them are like not terrible, but also not good at karaoke. You know, <laughs> like it, in some films they would, oh, and it turns out he's an amazing singer or something like that. But, or like, it turns out that they're absolutely terrible. But yeah. it's just like, it's, it's just, it's regular people having fun. I think this is, this is like the movie at its most like tone poemy or like mood mm. mood picturey kind of thing where like there's so little dialogue in this kind of like 20 minute stretch of the movie but it's also where like the crux of like the emotional foundation for the relationship is built mm-hmm. and i think it's it's probably like the most successful stretch of the entire film is this them, club night out it them is... like bonding yeah and uh you know they picked their own music i think as they certainly picked the duet that they do the roxy music number and like the... I mean, what, so it, it's, it's roxy music it's something to make bill murray feel older What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? Yeah, it is Nick Lowe. Nick Lowe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that makes him feel older than all of them. Yeah, and, and then she does. She does pretend as brass and pocket. Yeah. Uh, and they obviously do Roxy music at the very end, which yeah. I mean is is also like not a recent song, but is definitely like a yeah. really good choice for them to sing together. But Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson picked that person uh, themselves, and like they were like, yeah, this is very like reflective of like, the plot of this movie and everything. But yeah, like you get yeah, like they obviously start off in the bars, they get kicked out of the bar because Charlie Brown <laughs> angers the bartender somehow and then he chases them out like not with a gun but with a airsoft rifle a BB yeah gun. like a BB airsoft type. yeah yeah with like glow in the dark BBs or what it's like oh wow <laughs> yeah like they can you imagine them. if America did that they just said like oh you can have you can have guns but they all have to be airsoft we're recording this just after two mass shootings in the last week so. that does not help there are like there have been 230 this year that does that does not help pinpoint the time any 
Anyway, so yeah. <laughs> oh, why is it fucked? So, you know, we have this stretch where Bob is clearly developing a crush on Charlotte. To me, it's unclear at this point how she feels towards him other than just being welcome of the company sort of thing, but maybe it isn't, like, a sexual thing, but, like, he is, like, you know, carrying her back to the room, like, in his arms and, like, walking away from the encounter looking all wistful and then I he, mean, that's, and that's, then he immediately like. calls his wife the second that that's finished and that feels like a very, like... I feel guilty. Yes, exactly. But the thing is, I do appreciate that he doesn't, like, they could have done the thing where, like, I don't think he kisses her on the forehead or anything weird like that. He just puts her into bed, covers up, covers her up with blankets and then yep. leaves the room. Like, it's not like he comes into bed with her yeah. and sleeps on the other side. Like, he very clearly keeps his distance, which I appreciate. And I do think the movie does a very good job for the most part of not making this feel Predatory, sexual, but yeah. giving it a giving it a tension that could be sexual if you wanted to read it that way. Yeah, like, you read it as like, oh, they're in love, but it's like, really, it's mostly fine, I would say. Yeah, it, it, it's a very chaste love. Exactly. That could be romantic. It could be platonic. It could be. It could be interpreted in sure. many ways. Sure. And I think this this scene is one that kind of like toes that line very well. So he takes her to the hospital because she fractured her toe at some point. We don't see it. We don't see how bad it was. Uh, Brack toe gives her the stuffed animal, and you get that clearly completely unscripted scene with Murray talking to the person in the in the waiting room, and there's the two women behind them just cracking up openly. And it's like, you know, this is one hundred percent just Bill Murray talking to someone who doesn't understand him. Uh, I mean, I think we, I think we should reinforce at this point. Bill Murray is really fucking good in this movie. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Both him and Scarlett Johansson are absolutely fantastic. I think it's a real crime that I don't think she was nominated for best actress for this movie because she is fantastic. I think she got um, the BAFTA nomination. I think she won the BAFTA. Oh, cool. Yeah, she won the BAFTA for this movie. She didn't get the Oscar nomination. Bill Murray didn't win best actor either, but he is like. <laughs> Like this one is, and only nomination. Yeah, and so I want to see who he lost to. He lost to Sean Penn in Mystic River. Ugh, everyone loses to Sean Penn in the end. <laughs> I mean, my favorite, my favorite acting performance of the decade lost to Sean Penn. So what was that? That's Mickey Rock and the Wrestler. Uh, of Spoilers: We may be discussing this. <laughs> oh God, I look forward to it. Yeah, and like you know, he's getting the stuffed animal, and it was he has the kind of enthusiasm of man trying to court woman. But again, this could just be, you know, just like, oh, we're friends, I've got, you know, money is no object to me, let's hang out, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it does all feel a little bit like it's it's becoming more of a romantic thing. And then we get the kind of, like, the, the extended dialogue scene between the two of them, which well, is... Well, they first go to a strip club <laughs> with those that same group, and they immediately run away. And I may be over-reading into this, but on some level it feels to me like sex has been introduced very forcibly into their dynamic and their reaction is to run away from it and that could be like no 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 this isn't a sexual thing let's, let's run away or it could be like this I, is making me think sexual thoughts which exactly, is dangerous when I'm around this person exactly so, and then they you know they retreat back to the hotel room and, and as you said they have the extended talk about you know marriage and creative frustration and, and life direction and, and she says the thing about every girl goes through a photography phase like horses and it's like yeah kind of fair but also <laughs> maybe a little bit heteronormative but you know this is them at the 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 peak of like their actual acting ability like bill murray obviously gets more scenes to show off with the translation scenes earlier on in the film a but ring like oh yes ring a ding ding. <laughs> but yeah the two of them in this this scene is fantastic like them drinking sake out of the i, I don't even know what they're called the little brown rectangles <laughs> the little the little wooden boxes yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the body language between them here there is a bit of a physical 
divide. Like, is he flat on his back? And then she's, like, on her side, but with her knees up. And shot from above, it's not like a, oh, they're getting close to, like, spooning or, like, holding hands. It's like, there is that visual divide. But then he, like, awkwardly clutches at her foot when he's trying to reassure her. And it's like, hmm. But, like, everyone's had those kind of, like, weird moments where, like, I mean, obviously, like, I'm going to say now, like, where you drink all night with someone who you have this intense emotional connection to, but it's not necessarily sexual or anything like that. But, like, obviously, people who don't drink, it's... How dare you? It's a different... But, like, I'm sure you've had... I've never had a legal drink. I've had (laughs) illegal drinks that are similar to what you're saying, yes. But, but you know, like, where you stay up... Yeah, yeah, you're up all night shooting the shit, hitting all the big topics, and you're like, oh, my God, this is so... And it's like... And even, even if you never speak to that person again after you've had this, like, intense moment, it's still a night that you look back on as being like, that was intense. Yes. And I will never see this person again. Yeah. Bob does do that creepy dude thing of saying he uh, he saw her before she saw him and all that. So, you know, it's relatively harmless, but that is definitely a thing. Like, men, don't do that. But also, but also <laughs> we, we know that he did see her. We know he did, but, like, he shouldn't tell her that, probably. <laughs> so that moves us, I feel, into the final act. And, you know, a weird scene. Charlotte heads to Kyoto and, like, pokes around a shrine and, and we don't really see much of a reaction from her because I was expecting to be able to juxtapose what she said earlier about visiting the monks and not feeling anything and then seeing it here and like maybe this time she does have an emotional response because of whatever with Bob but we don't I mean, really know how she her, feels like. apparently her emotional response is to fax Bob a map of where a this sushi restaurant is doesn't really make a huge amount of sense to me because like he goes on that TV show so he I think I, I think the thing that's important is they don't include do you want to go for sushi tomorrow I think if the instruction the, the thing says if you get lost tell me right. but if it says do you want to go for sushi tomorrow thereby forcing him to extend his journey because he wants to go for sushi with her tomorrow it makes a hell of a lot more sense yeah because it just it reads like she's like do you want to go somewhere now he's like happy about it but then doesn't go and instead goes on a tv thing but still stays but yeah if it's if it was supposed to be do you want to go for sushi tomorrow then yeah there is something core lacking there where it's like she goes she goes to kyoto she's not going to have time to come back and go for oh, sushi God, nice. yeah, yeah. um and so it just needs that like that one line like either they're in the conversation behind which is like i'm going to kyoto tomorrow do you want to go for sushi on friday yeah. and then she emails him and then she faxes him the directions or the directions <laughs> come with do you want to go tomorrow and you know um he tells his wife on the phone that like he feels lost and he wants to eat healthier and she's like do i need to worry about you and you know he he's starting to i think talking all this stuff through with with charlotte is like making him think actively about things that are probably being a bit repressed uh, in his mind and and he goes on the uh, the very stereotypical crazy joke Japanese TV show. I mean, this is this is the last touchstone of like that racist thing where it's like the joke. They somewhat nominally go to like have him be the butt of the joke because when he watches the clip later and like the host does the heart and then the heart doesn't get produced by him, you can tell that like they're trying to have the joke be about Bill Murray not understanding what the game show is. But the entire movie has this kind of like sniveling like look down it because they go like, oh, he's the Johnny Carson of Japanese TV. Yeah. And then he ends up on this thing. And you're just like, Are you, you're trying to make people think worse of this because you're comparing this to Johnny Carson which is going to have people kind of thinking like ha ha the Japanese have such high estimations of like their art form of yeah 
Yeah. And it, it comes off as like kind of really icky. Like it's that he thinks he's going into something different, but he ends up on like, oh, it's just a traditional Japanese kind of talk show where it's all very heightened and stuff like that. And it's like all it needs is like, like even if you just remove that Johnny Carson line, it begins yeah. to become a little possible. And I understand like that that's how they're trying to talk him onto the show, hmm. but it does come off as like, oh, look, the juxtaposition is one is high and the other is low art. Yes. Like, he watches the clip back in the hotel room and I guess either Charlotte is like still in Kyoto or because of like the intensity of the travel and all that like she's like come home and gone straight to bed or whatever but it reads as though because he can't hang out with her but he is still feeling lonely he gets talking to the like the lounge singer or whatever in the bar and he ends up sleeping with her and Charlotte knocks on the door in the morning or because they've agreed to go to lunch and you know hears her in the shower and it's that whole I've just read realized i like you but oh you're with someone else and now i'm hurt and it's like she makes fun of the singer's age and and he he responds you know with the hurtful comment about you know her needing attention it's like dude you slept with someone because you needed attention so 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 how how do we feel because obviously like the movie has these two different like we don't know whether or not he slept with a cool girl on his first night we just know that they had a questionably racist time Um, (laughs) (laughs) but then this one like do you take his reaction as like regretting it because we do have the scenes with his wife when he's talking to his wife and like the scene in the bathtub where like he she hangs up on him and he says the I love you just a second too late for her to be able to hear him which they don't repeat the next yeah, time yeah. but like do you think he regrets it or do you think this is something that he does frequently like being a movie star he is frequently cheating on and maybe the regret in this one is more I'm doing this in front of Charlotte as opposed yeah, to I think it's that one I, I, I don't know if they're trying to say he frequently cheats on his wife but I the way it comes across I, yeah. to me is it's not the first time <laughs> I mean that's, but that, I mean, who is it that orders the, the the prostitute on the first night uh, like his someone who was looking but after it, him in Japan it's someone in Japan so is, is that another commentary on like oh well he's a big movie star therefore he's gonna want like maybe. some sex I mean, maybe uh, this is the first time he's ever been unfaithful, but he, he doesn't seem to freak out about that aspect of it as much as he's like, oh no, Charlotte the, the only person knocking on my door right now would be Charlotte, because yeah. I'm going to sushi with her. And maybe it's um, not even like, I don't know, maybe on some level it's like, I what she thinks of me is important as much as it's like, oh no, this is going to like ruin my chances with her or whatever, but yeah, it's all thing a is, bit... I do really like the emotional honesty of this bit, where it's like, it's that irrational part of a human brain, which is like I have never told him that I'm sexually attracted to him I have no claim over him but I'm still going to be offended that they've slept with someone else yeah. like because again like her her rebu- rebuke is never you cheated on your wife yeah she her never re- ever calls him on that it's a bit Mm. But like I just, I, it's that kind of like that that pettiness that shouldn't exist for any reason because yeah. and like if, mocking if you're the being singer's rational. age and stuff, it's all very like well in comparison to who you because I mean she I, I mean she says oh she's more your age or whatever which all feels like a very yeah acknowledging for the first time that what they're doing could be perceived as like a inappropriate thing but but then we skip to the thing where they go back to the hotel room after having this kind of like not a heated argument at lunch but like. It's Seems like an awkward lunch, a silent yeah. awkward lunch. <laughs> a silent awkward lunch where the fire alarm goes off for both of them when they're in the hotel, and then they reconcile. And like you imagine, it's it's probably been like twelve hours, but it's that thing that you do where like in the meantime, both of them have realised how stupid they were being, mm-hmm. and it's that kind of like oh, well, we both have to apologise now because it wasn't one of them doing something; it was both of them conjointly doing a stupid thing. And you get you know they share a very intimate silence in the bar that like this one is far more like romantically or sexually. Charged 
charged than their other like quiet moments have been and they they share that awkward pair of pecs like i think he kisses her like on the sort of cheek and maybe the corner of the mouth and then the second one i think they do kiss on the lips but like very quickly and it's all like mm. and then immediately when she gets in the same way that after he walked away from their encounter and he called his wife she gets the facts from john that's like i miss you and it's like we've been trained to know this guy is a shitbag but like i feel this is supposed to be making you like not condemn what they're doing. The thing is, but... I, I don't think I don't think he is a shitbag. I think he's just inattentive. I think it's that like Seems and obviously like a like... bit of a shitbag. Like I feel he's got some insecurities towards her in his own way. Like that... sure, but I don't but I don't think the movie's asking for a moral judgment on anyone. Probably not in the film. Like I, I don't think I don't think the movie like makes those steps to go like these are bad and good people because of the things that they do. Yeah. And I don't even think it gets that far with Giovanni Rabisi where like I think they're know, going they... for they're not communicating efficiently more than like he is a bad bad person and she shouldn't be with him yes <laughs> so they the next morning uh they say goodbye to each other in the hotel lobby there's like no intimacy to it at all because like, i i love i love the thing though where that the person recognizes him and it's just like oh like it's really lovely to meet you like i love your movies or whatever and then he sees charlotte come in the room and it's just like <laughs> um, i have to go now bye like, yeah fuck off basically <laughs> we've all had one of these like in your head it, you have to have a big emotional goodbye and then you have a very like normal not intimate at all farewell and it's just like oh and that's just over then i do want to ask like the woman who he like tells to fuck off yeah. essentially it was that supposed to be anna faris no it, well it's not anna faris. It, it just feels like it's supposed i know it's not anna faris but was it like like she wasn't available she had to go back early it just feels like the kind of thing where like that yeah, feels maybe. like the end of her that feels like the end of what her arc is supposed to be of her being like i'm a fellow movie star and i want to meet this movie star mm. yeah uh, essentially because <laughs> again like blonde american why interesting Introduce another person with the exact same criteria as blonde Americans are very rare to be fair but yeah he I don't know how the passage of time has worked here I don't know if he was like forced to go through a bunch of weird like checking out and like saying goodbye to the various people but you know they go from being in the hotel together and she heads back upstairs to during his taxi or his limo ride to the airport he spots her walking around the city and he's like I'll pull over and then they have their actual goodbye and initially it's just a hug and an inaudible whisper but then they do have the actual romantic kiss and I just want to gauge with you do you think they should have kissed? I don't think they should have kissed I I don't either I think think it's it's my least favourite part of it where it's like it feels like the awkward kind of like chased kisses in the elevator are more than enough to say and I and like and the, and here in this scene the whisper is enough to kind of like impart this kind of like intense emotional thing yeah. and the kiss feels that step too far in terms of like it, it takes it from being definitively like from not from being definitively it takes it from being kind of like ambiguous about whether or not the connection they have is romantic and exactly. takes it into a fairly definitive exactly. like I think it kind of it's not that it spoils it but like you have an hour almost of just them having a read into it what you will relationship and then it's closed with oh and then they make out and it's like oh okay and then like you know she walks away from that interaction all like grinning to herself and do you know why it's too it felt like too much and too far and all that because Bill Murray was told to do it and Scarlett Johansson was not warned it was going to happen so awkward mm, yes awkward the whispering was improvised as well and Coppola considered dubbing over it with audible dialogue but then when she watched it back she liked it better and this for a very long 
long time as one of cinema's big like oh no one knows what they said but i think they've come out and pretty much confirmed it was like something to the effect of promise me that the next thing you'll do is go up to that man and tell him the truth so sort of like tell your husband you don't want to come to tokyo or like you know you don't want to be like yeah it's, it's that like didn't someone like isolate the audio and all the rest of it and like get the scene to yeah there's like there were like three different takes and then i think they've ultimately sort of said yeah it's it's kind of that one but i think it's one of the more famous indie movie endings uh in in history if you take that kiss out i think it is quite good of just this kind of like it doesn't it comes across as almost like like i'm gonna say some wise words to you or whatever and like let's I don't know, and you're not left thinking they're like ever going to speak to each other again. But it's more satisfying than that awkward, like stilted goodbye they had in the hotel, you know. And so, if you just take that kiss out, I think that works. Like, even if he kisses her on the head or something, or, or on the cheek again, it's, it works better for me. But yeah, but it's it, it's the kiss on the lips that takes it, yeah. it up to something else. No, I mean I think it's weird. Like, I think this is probably the best movie we've done so far, apart from maybe Memento. But there's so much baggage to it that. I can't. I don't want to make that claim. I, that, like, I prefer are... Memento, but yeah, it, it, I I think it's in terms of like artistic and and filmmaking and these kinds of things. Like it is an incredibly well made movie and an incredibly well acted movie and hell of a soundtrack too. Like the Jesus and Mary uh, chain at the end there. It's a fucking dope yeah, song. I mean, I mean, Ke- Kevin Shields does some music for it, and I adore My Bloody Valentine. Yeah, uh, like that sequence where they're kind of like I think they're going to cross the bridge, and then the, I can't remember what song it is from Loveless that kicks in I'm just like oh this is that shoegazy bliss that I adore (laughs) yeah it's very hard to not acknowledge all of the problematic things about it but like in spite of that it is still like a beast of a movie and and yeah it's 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 got a complicated legacy for me (laughs) because it's like it's one of like the indie movies and like i feel so many people watched this and then went and made their version of it kind of thing you know with a different setting but you know learning a lot from it but then it's also got this just staggering amount of racism and i know women can be racist but it kind of shocks me more that it's coming from a woman you know but like there isn't that level of kind of emotional intelligence here i don't know maybe but i think it's more that not maybe not a lack of emotional attentions but it is that kind of like spoilers the capola family are quite rich yes (laughs) and so it comes it comes more from a place of privilege than from yeah it's privilege not malicious is the way that i would yeah that that makes sense it's like like this is this is i was 14 when i first came to japan and this is how i saw interactions going on when daddy was on set with yeah and I never needed to work a day in my life, but also I'm a famous film director as well. So yeah, and so I'm going to interpret it like my emotional reaction to the scene when I was 14 and write this down onto paper. And I mean, I don't know when when the, exactly the, the whiskey advert was shot, but I can imagine she was around in the country at that point yeah. to have fallen in love with it in that way. But it does feel very much like someone who's kind of like taken an emotional memory and turned it into something that's more farcical, which works possibly better when you're like doing it with other white people. But when you transplant another country's culture on top of it it becomes yeah icky icky but really really good that is lost in translation to i me. mean but that's so, that's so much of like so many things where yeah. it's like there are some films woody allen firmly cancelled 
<laughs> but you're not going to get away from the fact that there are films of his that are probably still in the canon that will still be watched and passed down. Yes, uh, Annie Hall is immortal. <laughs> yeah, no, that's like Annie Hall is immortal. Like basically anything else he's done, especially in the last twenty years, can like get on a bike. But <laughs> <laughs> which may be lost in translation to other to other cultures who might be listening to this. There is a wealth of criticism for this movie by Asian critics that is well worth reading. Yeah. Um, and we should say our own shortcomings in this area in that neither of us are of Asian descent. Neither of us. Bold of you, though. Very bold of you. <laughs> we're both we're both cis white men. Yeah. We cannot make uh, any comments on this. And if we have kind of overstepped anything, like please tell us that we've done something wrong. Like. Yeah, make one of the only comments we ever get to be to tell us that we're racist white boys. I would enjoy but that. Like, but like, pre- pre- preferably like just to, to teach us something as opposed to... Yeah, like, I am open to learn. I, I, if I ever use an incorrect term or, or phraseology, I would like to be told so I can change in the future rather than just go, not my problem, what you want to be called or whatever. You know, like. yeah. Anyway, now that we've awkwardly apologised for things that we may not have even done because we're British, uh, <laughs> let's end this episode... <laughs> Go to intotherealworld.com, go to soundcloud.com slash Mike and Matt, like, comment, subscribe, follow, do what you I'm want. So, I'm, I'm so happy we're discussing a movie we're actually qualified to talk about next. Yes, we are <laughs> uniquely qualified to talk about Shaun of the Dead next week because we are British, so we will receive no comments and criticisms <laughs> next week. We don't want to Because there it. are no people of colour in this movie of significant roles. Bye everyone, we'll see you next week. <laughs> there will be movies. <laughs> there will be movies. I can't even bring myself because of the white guilt. Bye, everyone!